This is the first episode of Doctor 101, a podcast where we break down the science behind medicine into easily relatable terms, and where we dissect the art of advocating for yourself in a medical setting, such as a doctor's office or hospital. I'm Dr. Rahman, CEO and Chairman at Rode, and the purpose of this podcast is to take the most commonly asked questions and concerns asked to me all the time. A lot of the times, I notice that some people are naturally passive when interacting with medical professionals, even though they might not be so in their normal lives. This could be because they're shy, embarrassed, or just not sure of themselves in a new environment, and that's completely understandable. I'm even willing to partially blame doctors for not creating enough of a friendly and open atmosphere for patients. But hopefully, with a little bit of knowledge provided in these podcasts, comes bravery for patients to at least meet us halfway in proactively working towards a beneficial patient encounter. And, of course, open lines of communication between patients and providers lead to better health outcomes, which both parties should be striving for at the end of the day anyway. So let's sit back and relax, or if you're jogging or driving to work, or wherever you may be listening, and learn about some medicine. More often than not, I'll be organizing the presented information in a logical, step-by-step fashion, much like how a doctor deals with a real patient. What does this exactly mean? First is a chief complaint, otherwise known as the short reason why one is coming to see the doctor, such as chest pain, breathing difficulty, or headache. After that is the history of presenting illness, or known as HPI, or sometimes I'll refer to this simply as the history, and this is basically the story behind the chief complaint, or the story why someone came to see the doctor. This will naturally lead to the diagnosis, assessment, and plan, which will hopefully include some other form of further investigation, treatment, or intervention. As you can tell by the title, today's talk is about diabetes. The earliest mention of diabetes in recorded history is by the ancient Egyptians in 1500 BC. Around the same time, Indians described the condition as modhu meha, or honey urine, as they noticed that ants were attracted to the sweet smell of the urine. Interestingly enough, doctors back then, until modern times when labs could detect diabetes, made the diagnosis by drinking a patient's urine and observing a sweet taste. Luckily, due to technological advancements today, we don't have to do that. But the problem is prevalent now more than ever. According to the CDC National Diabetes Statistics Report, 30.3 million Americans have diabetes, which is about 9.4% of the population and each year, 1.5 million new Americans are diagnosed with diabetes. This already includes a sizable chunk of the population, so we already have the 30.3 million Americans with diabetes, and in addition to that, we have the 1.5 million new Americans each year diagnosed with diabetes we just talked about. But to make matters worse, 84 million adults over the age of 18 have pre-diabetes, or those who are well on their way towards diabetes. This is not something that only affects adults, but the number of pediatric patients diagnosed with diabetes is also growing at an alarming rate. 
As waistlines not just in America, but around the world are widening in epidemic proportions, so is the prevalence of diabetes. And just know that when we're talking about diabetes here, we're talking about type 2 diabetes, which is the more common type of diabetes. Diabetes is the seventh most common cause of death in America, and if you really think about it, diabetes is an underreported cause of death because so many other diseases are associated with diabetes. Us medical people like to call this comorbidities, such as hypertension or heart disease, that might overshadow diabetes on the death certificate. This leads to the underreporting of diabetes as a deadly disease. Also, it's important to note the huge cost. Diabetes costs Americans a total of $327 billion, yes, that's billion with a B, dollars a year. There are two main kinds of diabetes, type 1 and type 2. Type 1, previously known as juvenile onset diabetes, is seen when the pancreas, which makes insulin, cannot produce insulin because of the destruction of a certain type of cells in the pancreas, or beta cells. Type 2, the more common type, previously known as adult onset diabetes. Also, as we just mentioned before, this is creeping more and more into the adolescent and pediatric populations. It's not a problem of producing insulin, but is seen when the body fails to respond to insulin, also known as insulin resistance. There is a third kind, gestational diabetes, and that's diabetes only during pregnancy in an otherwise non-diabetic woman. What we're focusing on today is type 2 diabetes, and the main symptoms are what I like to call are the three Ps, polyuria, polydipsia, and polyphagia, Latin root words which help us understand the meaning, with poly meaning many or much. So here we have much urine, polyuria, much thirst, polydipsia, and much hunger, polyphagia. To better understand this, let's form a hypothetical example of Mr. Jones, a 65-year-old male who loves to eat 10 candy bars daily. Now, the human body is pretty resilient, and Mr. Jones's pancreas can keep up with producing enough insulin to handle his 10 candy bars a day, since insulin helps the body do good by uptaking the sugar from the blood and using it for energy. But over many months and years, excess sugar builds in the blood as the pancreas is burning out and the body is slowly becoming resistant to insulin, as the organs are no longer as sensitive to insulin as before. As you know, the kidney is responsible for filtering anything left in excess in the body. In Mr. Jones's example, sugar, specifically glucose, needs to be eliminated from his body. And to filter out so much extra sugar from the body means the kidneys are working overtime to pee everything out. This is polyuria. And we know that if Mr. Jones is peeing more than usual, he will become dehydrated and thus become very thirsty, or polydipsia. Because insulin is not being properly taken up in Mr. Jones's body due to insulin resistance, Mr. Jones is not receiving the energy he needs for his daily life, and therefore feels tired and hungry all the time. Polyphagia. We are now beginning to see the chief complaints diabetics and pre-diabetics present with. For example, someone like Mr. Jones may say, 
Doc, I have been peeing non-stop and feeling really thirsty for the past one, two, or even six months. Or he might say, Doc, I'm not myself lately because I'm so tired now nowadays. If Mr. Jones is just presenting with fatigue and nothing else, you can imagine that the differential diagnosis, or all the possibilities that very well might be the diagnosis, is pretty wide. Anything from hypothyroidism, sleep apnea, depression, anxiety, viral infection, medication side effect, and so on and so forth. This brings us to the history, where the clinician asks questions to rule out all other possibilities and ruling in diabetes by process of elimination. Based on Mr. Jones's gender, age, and chief complaint, we as clinicians must keep type 2 diabetes in the back of our minds when eliciting a history related to fatigue. After gathering evidence from the history, we are one step closer to a diabetes diagnosis, and the physical exam is next. During the physical exam, a diabetic must be checked at least once yearly for nephropathy, disease of the kidneys, retinopathy, disease of the retinas in the back of the eyes, and neuropathy, disease of the nerves. We should be able to intuitively understand why kidney disease in diabetics occur by now. As we said earlier, kidneys are in overdrive to filter out the excess glucose from the blood and eliminate it from the body, and nephropathy is usually seen 5 to 10 years after the onset of diabetes, and is monitored through routine lab reports, including a urinalysis. For diabetic retinopathy, or disease of the eyes, it is known that excess sugar that travels through the blood vessels sticks to and damages these vessels especially small ones. Where are small vessels located? The eyes. Retinopathy usually takes about 20 years to develop and often comes without warning signs and symptoms and therefore must be checked for on a yearly eye exam. As blood vessels are damaged by this process, not only in the eyes but the rest of the body, the vessels are unable to supply the nerves, causing neuropathy usually within a few years of a diabetes diagnosis. Neuropathy is usually tested with a monofilament, a tool that checks for loss of sensation. There are many symptoms that can result, but the one I want you to know for now for neuropathy is numbness and tingling of an extremity. Neuropathy is very important because it is so common in diabetics. If Mr. Jones can't feel his extremities, for example his feet, he is prone to banging his feet accidentally without feeling much pain. This repetitive trauma can cause sores, leading to ulcers and nasty chronic infections that may even require hospitalization and IV antibiotics, and ultimately amputation. So remember, if you want to keep your toes, keep your glucose in check. Moving on, how can we concretely make a definitive diagnosis of diabetes? This is done through investigating specific values seen on lab reports. Now we're about to get a little technical here, but if you stay with me, I'll make it as easy and painless as possible. If you or someone you know has diabetes, or even if you don't, you may already be familiar with the numbers we're about to discuss. The main risk factors are similar to to those for heart disease, greater than 45 years old, obesity, and hypertension. And these are people who should be screened for diabetes first. 
One important test is the fasting blood glucose, where say your appointment is at 9 a.m. tomorrow, it is better not to eat or drink anything, except for some water, starting 9 p.m. tonight. For the fasting blood glucose test, the numbers to know are 100 and 125, and this test is done twice for confirmation. Anything below 100 is normal, equal to above 125 is diabetes, and a result between 100 and 125 is prediabetes. For most people, the most useful test will be the HbA1c. Hb stands for hemoglobin, a vital component of blood, and A1c is just the name of the type of hemoglobin. The HbA1c looks at how much sugar is stuck to the blood and gives an average of blood sugar levels in the past three months. You might be wondering, how can we calculate the past three months if we're only taking a blood sample today? Well, the average red blood cell lasts about 120 days, or about four months, from creation to destruction. So since new blood cells are continually being made and destroyed, the average red blood cell currently throughout the body is approximately three months old. The numbers for HbA1c are 5.7 and 6.5. Anything below 5.7 is normal. Anything greater than or equal to 6.5 is diabetes. And a value between these numbers is prediabetes. By the way, there's no need for memorizing these numbers. I did just include them to give you an idea so you're not completely lost if you ever hear your healthcare provider mentioning them during a doctor's visit. And for those who are a little more advanced, you'll notice that I did skip over some diagnostic tests in order to help keep things as simple as possible. Based on the labs we just learned, let's take Mr. Jones as our example. Before he becomes diabetic, his lab values are pre-diabetic at one point or another. At this pre-diabetic stage, guidelines suggest that lifestyle changes and metformin, an oral agent to reduce blood sugar, are in order. Lifestyle changes are crucial for anyone at any point with prediabetes or diabetes. This includes diet and exercise. Note that I did not say diet or exercise. For diet, I'm sure you already know that Mr. Jones should cut out his 10 candy bars a day. But also, carbohydrates like rice or bread eventually break down into sugars in the body as well. Also, we know that fruits are generally healthy, loaded with antioxidants, but not all fruits are created equal. Some fruits like oranges and pineapples can raise blood sugar significantly and therefore should be avoided. Apples and any kind of berries are usually healthier and a safer bet. If you'd like a complete list of healthy foods, I recommend you Google low glycemic index diet and you can choose from that list what you like from there. As for exercise, I recommend a minimum of 30 minutes of activity that breaks out a sweat for at least three times a week. This can be whatever you like, running, cycling, hiking, lifting weights, or anything of the sort. And of course, you can add to your workouts as your body gets used to it over time. It is important to note that exercising muscle does not require insulin release. 
This means when the body is exercising, it will do insulin's job by directly picking up sugar from the blood and not stress the pancreas. Exercise is especially important in reducing stress, as keeping stress at a minimum is key because stress releases hormones that increase blood sugar. As I mentioned earlier, official guidelines suggest to add metformin in the pre-diabetic stage, but physicians will sometimes allow patients to make changes to help bring down their sugar for three months and then recheck the results, and if the sugars are still abnormal, only then add metformin. I must admit that it is very difficult for those with high blood sugars to bring them under control within three months. I have seen it happen, and it is very possible, but also rare, since drastic changes must be made, and the improvement in results must be seen in a very short period of time. Sometimes, patients will come in and say, Hey, I cut out eating ice cream and cut down on rice and pasta. That's good and all, but what have they done for exercise? If they respond with, But doc, you said diet or exercise. That's a problem. I just want to reiterate that diet and exercise are both important. Most pre-diabetics will sooner or later become diabetics, and that's just the fact of the matter. Once diabetes is established, the first step, like in pre-diabetes, is lifestyle modifications and metformin. Metformin is not for everyone due to its side effects, unfortunately. But one good side effect of metformin is weight loss, and this is significant because obesity is such an important risk factor for diabetes. After a few months, if lifestyle modifications and metformin are not keeping blood sugars under control, it is time to add another medication. There are a variety of medications to choose from at this stage, and glipizide or gliburide are added here. After another few months with lifestyle changes, metformin and a second drug added, and at this point diabetes is still not under control, then it is now time to add insulin. These medications, used in conjunction with each other, should help control blood sugars as regularly monitored through routine blood tests, as well as at-home glucose meters. You may have noticed that I keep mentioning that it is important to be, for blood glucose to be kept under control. But what does this mean? This means checking HbA1c every three months and making sure that it is under 7% as a general rule. But hang on, if you remember, we mentioned that 6.5% was used to diagnose diabetes. So shouldn't HbA1c kept below 6.5% instead of 7%? Well, the concept to know here is that if sugars drop too low, otherwise known as hypoglycemia, symptoms of shaking, heart palpitations, feelings of passing out, an eventual coma, which is deadly and will cause more harm than good. Therefore, it is safer to keep HbA1c below 7% for a diagnosed diabetic to keep sugars low, but not dangerously low. As we head towards the end, let's talk a little bit more about insulin. In a healthy patient, a steady stream of insulin is released throughout the day. 
After meals, glucose levels rise and insulin helps bring down blood glucose. In a diabetic, extra insulin given as medication may be needed to help bring down these sugar spikes after meals. Just like in the body, where there's a steady stream of long-acting insulin, plus extra rapid-acting insulin released after meals in a healthy individual, this is what we as clinicians want to target when we prescribe medications. What is important to remember here is that a diabetic that takes insulin, they need to, in a perfect world, for every meal, check their sugar, take insulin, and eat a meal in that order. Check their sugar, take insulin, and eat a meal. It is worth mentioning that there is a risk of hypoglycemia or low blood sugar that can become dangerous if a patient takes insulin but forgets to or does not eat right after. For example, if Mr. Jones's blood sugar is checked at dinner time and it is high, that means we must look back at lunch to see how much he ate and if he isn't getting enough insulin at lunch. The point here is to see that if blood sugar is high right now, we must investigate what was going on in the previous meal. This regimen is the best, but because it requires four blood glucose checks and four insulin injections, three meals plus at bedtime, you can see how it can get complicated really easily. That is why doctors try to work around this inconvenience with less optimal drugs, but drugs that are easier to use on a daily basis. As a diabetic, a patient needs to have an honest conversation with their provider about what they can handle and the best option for them. And this is exactly what I'm trying to achieve with this podcast. Not just make medicine easier to understand, but allow this information to open a stronger doctor-patient relationship so you, as the patient, can enjoy a better experience and your provider finds it easier to provide care in his or her busy schedule. To be quite honest, I'm not sure how many podcasts I'll be making or how frequently I'll be making them. So to anyone listening out there, your feedback is very important to me. And if you're enjoying this, please don't forget to rate this podcast. Also, I'm happy to take your questions on Twitter at AskDoctor101 or email me at AskDR101 at gmail.com. I just have a short message from our sponsor, Dr. Dermacare, a skincare clinic for your skincare needs, including microdermabrasion, permanent hair removal, chemical peels, dermaplaning, and so much more. They're located in Peekskill, New York. You can call 877-266-0300, 877-266-0300 today for more information and schedule an appointment today. Thanks for listening.